A quick note before we start. This episode is about 9-11. Some parts are graphic and may be difficult to listen to. Every morning, I head into a skyscraper in Lower Manhattan. It's called One Liberty Plaza, and it's imposing, even a little ominous-looking. 54 stories of steel, painted black. Coming at it from the west, I climb up some steps and pass a huge Brooks Brothers store. On the first floor, in the window, there are pictures of models in perfect conservative Oxfords or Argyle sweaters. On September 11, 2001, when terrorists attacked the World Trade Center across the street, the paper and rubble from the collapsing buildings piled up on those steps. That one Liberty Plaza building, which is just to the east of the World Trade Center. And some of those windows were blown out. Rumors spread fast. They saw the building starting to twist and then said they saw some windows starting to break. We are seeing the windows breaking from... But one Liberty Plaza steel held up. Our office is in that building now. And ever since we moved in, I've thought about what it looked like around here 17 years ago. What was Ground Zero across the street is now glass towers and a transportation hub that looks like a white-winged caterpillar. This was and is a hub of capitalism, too. Stock exchanges, big banks, and lots and lots of stores are all right here. One Liberty Plaza once again looks like it did before the attacks. Right up those steps, just as there's been since the building opened in the 70s, there's that two-story Brooks Brothers selling the uniform of capitalism. And there's this one photo that has always stuck with me. It was taken right after 9-11 from the outside looking in. In the background, the store is remarkably intact. Shelves and shelves of perfectly stacked dress shirts. In the foreground, there are two mannequins. One leans on its back, pressed up against a table of shirts. The other to its left is lying flat on its back on the ground, on top of dust and papers and broken glass blown in from the buildings that collapsed a few feet away. The mannequins look like bodies. And at the moment the picture was taken, it's almost like it was foreshadowing what this store would become a few hours later. It's a story I hadn't heard before. A Brooks Brothers storefront near the collapse site is now a makeshift morgue where rescue workers are bringing any body parts. And now I think about a guy I met who lived through that. From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name, the show about brands you know and stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. It's been 17 years since 9-11. It feels to me like we've begun to lose the specific details of that day, the small stories. We're more likely now to see images of rescue workers putting a flag on rubble. Horror has given way to patriotism. So today, a different September 11th story. How two people's lives were changed at the Brooks Brothers store next to the World Trade Center. The first, a dapper salesman named Antonio de Jesus, who helped dress a man about to go for a job interview in the towers. After the first blast, Antonio fled, and amid the chaos and confusion, rescue workers transformed his store into a makeshift morgue. The second, a young doctor named Sandeep Jahar, who later found himself inside the store, would have become a place to take body parts desperately improvising as the unlikely leader in the room. What happened in his brief time there forced Sandeep to question his training, preparation, and his own limits. Sandeep was like many first responders. He felt like he couldn't do much, but gave everything he could. 
Whenever people talk about 9-11, they almost always talk about the weather. Take a look at the highlights for today. New York City, beautiful day here. 80 degrees. That sky that morning, it was stunningly blue. Miles and miles of sunshine. Miles Davis. We're going to put miles out there today. Nice as it can be. Alarmingly blue, one said. Airline pilots have a term for the unlimited visibilities on days like that. Severe clear. I think people talk about the weather as a way of saying that morning was exceptionally ordinary, like the best version of an average Tuesday. At first, that's what it was like for Antonio de Jesus. It was like 7.30 when we got there uh, to open up, and then by 8.30 we full-on business. Back then, Antonio held the keys to the Brooks Brothers across the street from the World Trade Center. So he was the one who got things up and running that morning. He made sure the piles of sweaters and the racks of suits were ready for the kinds of people who shopped at that store. He was the typical Wall Street guy, the family guy, and of course the tourists coming in to look at the towers. Today, Antonio is a salesman at a new Nordstrom men's shop uptown. We caught him on his lunch break outside. But he spent a couple of decades at the two-level Brooks Brothers at One Liberty Plaza, selling white collars to the white-collar workers. I love the place. It was, it was always, you know, it's always going to be in, in my heart as a second home because while you were in the inside, it's like you were in the outside. You can see everything was going on when it was cold, when it was raining, when it was snowing. So it was, it was always you know, nice to be there. And on that morning, just after Antonio unlocked the front doors, a guy rushed in. He didn't like his tie, and neither did I. But I was trying to convince him that for an interview, he needed to get a different tie, a little more conservative than what he chose it. The customer had a big job interview in a few minutes at Cantor Fitzgerald, the financial firm at the top of the North Tower. I remember pulling out a white shirt out of the wall to place it there and took his jacket off and put it on the top. And I was showing him ties. He goes, no, I don't like this one. I like this one. No, I don't, I don't like that one. And, then, and we were like back and forth with the dilemma. It's a normal thing. You know, when you're selling, you have to uh, offer options, choices. So. And by the time he'd finally settled on a tie, it was around a quarter to nine. The guy left, headed toward the towers. Then, at 8.46 a.m., Antonio heard what he thought was thunder. The North Tower was 800 feet away. Then screaming and fleeing, and then another crash. This time the South Tower, just 500 feet from the store. Antonio ran away and into a building farther away, trying to escape, but then realizing he couldn't outrun the debris. Then, when he finally cleared, I left. Then I was stepping on all this powder. My shoes got covered uh, in, in, with this white... Um, um, like, like a dust, like settlement, like whatever it was there. And you look at the ledges of the buildings, and they, it's like a, like, like a snow had gone through it, and everything is full of papers, and, and of course the smell of uh, like, like burning wire, which is like, I cannot get that out of my head. I was in panic mode, but I was, I was in control. So as I walked around and encountered other uh, people that seemed to be lost, like I saw this guy that used to be a shoeshine guy, they only knew one way in and one way out home. And I walked with him through the streets to find a way of getting him back on a bus or something like that for him to go home. It would take a year for Antonio to find out what happened to the man who had a job interview. 
But on that morning, around the same time Antonio was selling ties, a young doctor named Sandeep Jahar was at a different kind of appointment. We actually, my wife and I, had been trying to get pregnant. So we actually went to her obstetrician that morning. Sandeep had just finished his residency. He was kind of a prodigy. Started college at 16. He finished a PhD before he started medical school. Now he was starting a cardiology fellowship at Bellevue Hospital on Manhattan's Far East Side. He was as well-trained as a 32-year-old doctor could be and about to start a family. I think we had already met with the doctor and we were handling some insurance form or something and I was sitting in the waiting room and, and I looked you know, at the television and there was a lot of hubbub. Obviously a major fire there and there has been some sort of explosion. We don't fully know the details. There is one report as of yet. And then it appeared that a plane had struck the, you know, one of the towers. At that point, no one thought that there would be any need to get involved. Uh, I remember thinking this was just a terrible thing that happened. And, you know, it was on my mind when I got into a cab to go down to Bellevue. Into the upper floors. Excuse me, I'm I'm getting a report here. Uh, Steve Sullivan, who is our host on... Radio was on. This morning, although our FM station is off the air. And I recall that either the radio or the cab driver said a second plane hit the building. A second plane flew from the south, um, going towards the north, and it... And stupidly, I thought, what are the chances of that? Brooklyn, a second plane. It seems to be like a 747, one of those... Size, um, plane. Okay, it just we are, flew about seconds ago into the second tower. Okay, we are not going to speculate as to what kind of... Bellevue is one of the trauma centers, and so um, it became quickly obvious that any casualties, um, at least some of the casualties, would be brought to Bellevue. So, you know, I went down to the emergency room, and I remember at one point there was just a whole line of trauma surgeons dressed in blue. And it was just a very vivid sight. It was like a sea of blue. My friend Todd, who was a fellow, said the building just came down. I remember thinking that's not possible and that under the stress of it all, he's hallucinating. Or that, you know, maybe a portion of the roof fell off. And wow, this is just getting really, you know, horrible. So I remember looking out the window. I couldn't really see anything, but it was pretty clear that there was only one building. And then there was a lot of smoke. The hospital went into complete overdrive, and they started calling in people who were post-call. Did it feel like the hospital had a plan, or was this kind of beyond the plan? I think it was being improvised. But I think the plan at that point still was there are going to be a whole bunch of people coming in and we better get the maximum use of limited resources. So surgeons were brought in and I remember then we just waited. There were very few patients. There were no casualties, you know, people who had been in the buildings. And so... At that point, just the communication was so poor 
that it just wasn't clear, you know, what was going on with those people. Were they downtown? Were there just not enough ambulances to bring them to Bellevue? And so when they asked for volunteers to go down, I, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go down. And there were maybe, I don't know, six doctors, a couple nurses, sort of a contingent from Bellevue went down in the ambulance, and we got down there. What was going through your head on the way? Were you even processing this? I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect. I just remember thinking, this is Beirut. Literally, the color changed. You know, it was relatively sunny up at 34th Street, and all of a sudden, it was like nighttime. I mean, it was like a deep, deep dusk. And there was smoke swirling all around, and there was just like cars that were just coated with ash. I mean, it was just sort of a silly thought, but I just remember thinking this is, this is absolutely you know, insane that this is actually New York City. The first day, I went down to that first triage center, and this was maybe an hour or so before we had to evacuate because of the World Trade Center 7 building was on fire, and they deemed it structurally unstable. And I walked in and I just said, I just blurted out, where are the patients? And someone said, they're all dead. The next few minutes include graphic descriptions of body parts in the Brooks Brothers morgue. If you don't want to hear, or if you're listening with children, you may want to skip ahead. People are waking up in disbelief with unbelievably heavy hearts, especially those who have lost loved ones or who are uncertain where their loved ones are. And very understandably, my wife did not want me to go down there the second day. We still don't know how high the human toll will climb. You know, she thought I had played my role and that there was really no reason to go down again. The early numbers, Matt, are staggering. 266 people on the four hijacked... went back to the triage center. A policeman shouted that they needed doctors in the Brooks Brothers building, that they had set up a morgue there, and they needed doctors there. And he wasn't clear what it was about. And um, you know, at that point, I had spent quite a bit of time in the triage center and nothing was really going on. So they were asking for help somewhere else. So I went ahead and followed him and walked um, over to the Brooks Brothers building. We got to the building. I remember in the lobby, there was just shattered glass and there were police dogs. And I think actually at that point, they were using dogs to search for survivors. So there were some German shepherds in the lobby of the Brooks Brothers building. And then there was a curtain and someone was saying, you can't come through here unless you're a doctor. And the policeman who I had followed said, I have a doctor here. 
And so he led me in, and then we were in, I guess, the first floor of the Brooks Brothers building, Brooks Brothers store. I remember there were tables with shirts, like Brooks Brothers shirts. Some of the uh, clothes had like thick dust on them, but you could still make out that that was green and, and that's pink and that's, you know, so you could still sort of make out the colors. It was just so incredibly surreal. There was really nothing. I walked in and I remember there were about three doctors, you know, sort of standing on the floor. And then behind them, there was a table and there were three or four people sitting at the table. And that was about it. And they were sort of standing around. And I think that someone had just brought in a body part and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. The three people behind the table were, I think, listening for instructions and maybe filling out forms. And the main doctor there was a man, he was older than I was. He looked like maybe he was in his mid-40s, but he had a badge that said PGY-3 which means he was a third-year resident, and I was actually a fellow at the time. So I was actually more senior than he was. And I just remember that thought really disturbing me, that they might actually call on me to run this thing. And I had absolutely no idea what to do. And this older gentleman seemed to know much more than I did about what to do, at one point, I think someone who's sitting behind the table said, do we need a separate form or do we need a separate bag for each body part? And there was like silence, like no one really knew. Um, I think someone was going to go ask the policeman, but I don't think they knew. So it was, it was just a sort of scene of tremendous improvisation, not really knowing what was going on. And I was just kind of standing there and then they brought in you know the 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 remains of someone who of of, a, of someone who had died, and they were sifting through the body. This person had been their whole lower body had been severed. And so there was like a pelvis, like a lower part of the body, and out of the pelvis were hanging basically their abdominal organs. And I just remember feeling incredibly nauseous at that point. I wasn't sure what to do, and I don't think anyone knew what to do. And there was a woman there who ended up saying something like, holy mother of God, what do we do with this? But then someone said that part of this victim had been brought in earlier with a cell phone. So they were going to try to use the cell phone to identify his family and call and, and I guess deliver the bad news, but that wasn't our job. We were just supposed to document these parts and have the people 
behind the table, fill out the form, and then attach the form to the bag, and then move on. And after they got through that, I was just standing there, and the woman sort of turned to me and said, I've got to leave. I, I, I just, I can't do this right. You know, I can't do this anymore, or I, I need a break. Are you a doctor? And I said, yes. And she said, great, you're in charge now. What did you think when they put you in charge? This is what you had dreaded when you first walked in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't want to be in charge. I just, I, you know, I, I'm a cardiologist. I don't relish emergencies, but I do handle emergencies, you know, people having heart attacks. and. But this was so beyond anything I was able to do. You know, it was pathology. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't what I had been trained to do, so... I mean, I recognized the importance of it. I, I was really glad that there were people there who was doing this job. And then the other guy, who was a PGY3, said that he was also going to be stepping out. I don't know how many hours or that they had spent there. There were fortunately a couple other doctors. And because I guess because I was a PGY4, suddenly I was in charge. They may have brought in another stretcher with with other parts, and they were, I remember, you know, I had gloves on, and I sort of looked, and and I, I tried to do my best to identify what these parts were, you know, it was, it was spleen, liver, whatever, and, and I tried to get through one of those, and then at, at that point, I just started to feel, like, physically sick. I just couldn't do it. There were fortunately a couple other doctors there, and and they were those people behind the table. And I said, you know, I, I, I just you know I can't do this right now, and and I ended up walking out. You know, and I would have stayed if I could have done it, but, but I mean, I think you might, you know, probably could imagine that doing that for about forty five minutes or an hour can just it's 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 such a emotionally turbulent thing that that I, I just had to get away. As I was walking, I remember there were the dressing room, there were like bags and bags of unused body bags. So they were clearly were planning on doing this for a long time. I remember not walking out through the lobby, but just walking out through, you know, a door just pushing it open and just walking out onto a street that was just pretty much demolished. You never went back in? No. How long were you there, would you say? You know, it, it's such a blur. Probably about an hour, maybe, 45 minutes, something like that. I don't really remember how I got home. I think, you know, watching this from afar, there's almost this feeling that the first responders and the people like you who are rushing in there are almost like superhuman, that they're not having emotions in these periods. They're not experiencing grief or revulsion or any of those things. Yeah, it's impossible not to 
experience emotional upheaval and trauma in a situation like that. I mean, there are situations where you can kind of turn off your feelings or at least suppress them, you know, in the service of rational thought, you know, when you're trying to diagnose a patient or you're working with sick patients like I do. But that kind of situation, it's just impossible because you just understand the enormity of, you know, what what happened. And moreover, it was in my hometown. And there was no doubt that, I mean, subsequently I was to hear about people in my building who worked down at the World Trade Center or, you know, subsequently parents of my children's friends who perished, you know. So it was, it was, you, you couldn't be there without being aware of that. And then that was it. And then I did not go back the next day, no. For a long time, I just didn't really want to read anything about 9-11. I knew that the memorial was being erected, but I didn't really... I only visited it, you know, last year, maybe two years ago. You know, it's just just something that I, I kind of put in a corner of my mind, and, and I, it's not something that I particularly talked about or, you know... Why not? I just didn't want to. I just didn't, you know, I didn't think it was something that I really wanted to, to revisit or, or talk about what I had seen, you know. Maybe there was a little bit of, you know, PTSD or, you know. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to put a word like that on it. I, I don't, th- you know, what I went through was just so minuscule compared to what, you know, some of the, the firefighters and the policemen who were down there for weeks, you know, and, and, and other people were there for a long time. I was there for a relatively short period of time, but the experience was such that, you know, I didn't really want to remember that much of it. Had you worn Brooks Brothers clothes before then? Oh, yeah. I still do. Do you think about that at all? Mm, maybe vaguely, you know. How so? You know, just that, you know, I I was at the Brooks Brothers building, and, and it's such a contrast, you know. Like, the store is, you know, one that just sort of seems to embody, you know, all-American, you know, values and sort of, business attire you know I don't know this is what I think of Brooks Brothers you know sort of clean living and and then you know there was this this morgue in the store <laughs> you know it, it, it's just it was unreal from what little I know about the motivations of the terrorists that day, you know, they were really trying to hit at the centers of Americanism. The heart of commerce and the signature of the New York skyline is no more. And one could argue that Wall Street and what it embodies and the, you know, mercantilism and capitalism, that was, you know, their motivation. The fact that Brooks Brothers was sort of swept up in that was 
you know, obviously an accident, but you know, it's sort of in keeping with that day. Have you been back to that store since then? No. You know, it all looks so different because it was, you know, everything was bombed out. There was rubble all the way up to the entrance to the, to the store. Yeah. Right over here. Yeah. I guess the dressing rooms are right over here. Yeah. What do you see, if you can describe it? Yeah, this was exactly, yeah, it's all kind of rushing back. But yeah, it was, it was very dark. And this was actually not the, the morgue per se. The, um, I think that was on a different wing. But, um, you know, so these tables had been cleared out. And then there was that one table that was, where people were sitting and recording uh, and then there was like this open area in, in the middle where people were bringing in the body parts to be processed. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly what I remember. But yeah, I, I do remember seeing the, the shirts like stacked up neatly. Yeah, I mean, you know, we hear that a lot, you know, you don't want, you know, the terrorists to, to win, you know, to, to, to emerge victorious. So you, you rebuild and, you know, you rebuilt right on the World Trade Center site, right? I mean, and uh, I think that's, that reflects, you know, the American spirit. Yeah, I'm glad that they they didn't demolish this this place. I'm glad it's still it's still up. It's nice to see actually. But I don't want to shop here. Exactly one year after the attacks, the Brooks Brothers reopened at One Liberty Plaza, across from Ground Zero. A lot of the stores reopened. Our damage was cosmetic. It wasn't, um, you know, structure. So they were able to replace everything and put it back into to business. Antonio De Jesus had spent that year at another location, Uptown. So I said, well, I want to go back to Liberty Plaza. That's my home. I love the place. It was, it was always, you know, it's always going to be in, in my heart as a sacred home. Because we wanted to show that uh, downtown was back in business. When he first returned to the store, people in the building, security guards and the like, started telling him stories. They were telling us that, do you know that uh, your film rooms were stocked with uh, body bags that only have extremities? He turned to his friend Jackie, who was another salesperson there. 
me and my friend Jackie, what we did is we took a moment and went to the ladies' uh, department, which also was used for that. And um, we put out a, a prayer uh, for the souls that were, uh, you know, if it would happen. After that, everything was calm and clean and we move on with our lives. Do you remember what the prayer was? Well, it was something like, uh, oh Lord, here we are, uh, praying for the souls and, and lives lost and this uh, catastrophe and so on. It was something along those lines. It was just to make sure that uh, we felt comfortable and clear that uh, a prayer was put out for, for those people. After that, things mostly returned to something resembling normal. I mean, we were kind of uh, quiet in the first you know, year or so, but, uh, but we were there. The area around the store was still a mess, but one day, a man walks in. See, and he's telling somebody the story. Oh, I was here, and this guy helped me with a tie, and you know what? He, he, he was so in, uh, indecisive and blah, blah, blah. They couldn't decide what tie I, was, I should wear, blah, blah, blah. It was the guy who had come in to buy ties before his interview at Cantor Fitzgerald. I heard the conversation. I said, oh, that, that was, I'm that guy. Cantor Fitzgerald was one of the worst hit companies on 9-11. More than two-thirds of its workforce died that day. But this man had never made it to his interview. But in this case, it was just a coincidence that, um, you know, the guy came in and I'm the guy helping him. And that, uh, I make him a little bit later, or oh, late, that he was all, already. But hey, if you feel grateful about it, hey, I'm happy. I don't know his name now because I never took his name or anything like that. But this is one of those things that I, uh, I keep thinking about when, when I think about 9-11 and everything that went on. And, and it was just that. The, the one guy that uh, probably saved his life just because, you know, he was dealing with me and he was very undecisive. Antonio would go on to work at that store for another 16 years. Sandeep would become a successful cardiologist and author. This area is once again a tourist attraction, now as much for the memorial as for the gleaming new mall. You could pass that Brooks Brothers and have no idea what happened there. But head up to the second floor, and right by the dressing rooms, there's a gallery of photos. There are photos of the store in the days after the attacks, and then in the same spot 10 years later. The sweaters and suits are now clean, and the mannequins once again stand in the window. This episode was produced by me, Dan Bobkoff, with Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Our senior producer is Claire Rawlinson. Our editor is Peter Clowney. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. The executive producers at Stitcher are Chris Bannon, Laura Mayer, and Jenny Radelet. Let us know what you think of the show. You can email us at householdname at businessinsider.com. And if you're new to the show, check out our past episodes and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next one.
Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.